Welcome to Parenthood Pals. I'm Caleb Hoyer. And I'm Melissa Fight Johnson. And today I'm so happy to be joined by an old friend of mine from NYU, Dylan Landau. Hi, Dylan. Hi, guys. Welcome, Dylan. Thank you. Where are you joining us from today, Dylan? I am joining you from my new and old home of Toronto, Canada. Dylan's our first international guest. Yes. Wow. What an honor. <laughs> Global honor domination. For us too. <laughs> it really is. This is so cool. So, Dylan, would you tell us a little bit about Team Landau, your family growing up and your family now? My family now is me and my boyfriend. He's technically now my common law partner because uh, <laughs> we had to do that in order to get him into the country. That's cool. So oh. That's pretty exciting. Um, it involved nothing. Uh, we just had to live <laughs> together for a year. So, pretty easy. <laughs> Um, My original Landau clan, I have two parents, a mom and a dad, and an older sister who is three years older than me. Cool. Excellent. This episode involves Amber and her first time performing one of her like original songs somewhere. And so I wanted to ask Dylan on because Dylan is a fantastic singer-songwriter in her own right. (laughs) And if I'm remembering correctly, you were named after Bob Dylan. Is that correct? I was. I have some hippy-dippy parents. (laughs) I love that. It feels so meant to be with this show. The theme song. Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah, that's true. Some of the theme song. Yeah. Right? It goes back and forth a little bit. I was going to say, I've read that the alternate theme song, When We Were Young, plays on the DVDs and the international versions oh. of the show. So do you get When We Were Young in Canada? I... Honestly, I'm not sure because I've been watching through pretending that we're in the U.S. I don't know technology, but my Uh, boyfriend does. So he's set it up so we can use all of the U.S. streaming services. Nice. So we've been watching the American Parenthood. Okay. (laughs) Well, Toronto is so close to America anyway. I know. It counts. It's fine. (laughs) I think that's not very deceptive. Well, great. And what is, I know your history with Parenthood, but will you share with listeners what your uh, history with the show is? I think I started watching when it started, but I'm not 100% sure. I do remember it was definitely while it was on because I was watching just once a week, usually with my roommate, Ariel. And I definitely, yeah, I think it was for the whole time, just watching every week until the end, which was, I think my last year of college was the last year of parenthood. Wow. I remember talking about it with you at NYU. <laughs> yeah, there's like a circle of people who watched Parenthood and we would all discuss. Well, fantastic. Thank you for sharing all that with us. And thanks for joining us. It's nice. I think it's been a while since we've had a longtime fan of the yeah. show. Happy to be here. I haven't watched in so long, though. I watched the pilot and then this episode that we're talking about just to refresh my memory, but nothing in between. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. That was kind of us with this whole podcast. Oh, it's great, though. It's great. It's to revisit. so it is. good. It's wonderful to revisit. Yeah. And you pick up different things every time, for sure. <laughs> We're Definitely. picking up a lot more now. <laughs> yeah. Than- yeah. <laughs> In the good ways and the bad ways, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, mostly good. But yeah, yeah, definitely both. Well, today we're discussing Parenthood Season 2, Episode 12, Meet the New Boss. It was written by <laughs> Sarah Watson, directed by Lawrence Trilling, and it originally aired on January 11th, 2011. And here is the NBC synopsis. Adam tries to cope with the idea of a new boss and is concerned about the stability of his job. Christina tries winning Hattie over as she seeks comfort in Amber when she realizes her parents refuse to accept her decision. 
Meanwhile, Crosby is attempting to overcome a few obstacles of his own as a coordinator of a kindergarten performance at Jabbar's school. Amber is taking on the challenge of performing at an open mic night, but she is surprised by who her biggest critic is. Well, since this episode is called Meet the New Boss, I thought we would start with the new boss. You hate Corey. You know, he should be working in a video store. Now, he's that guy. The scruffy kid who acts like he's Johnny Zen, but he's really just a slacker in a video store who doesn't have the drive to ring up a sale in a respectful amount of time. You know Jeez, what I mean? He's that yeah. guy. That's terrible. And now he runs TNS. I know we've said before how, like, traditional this show is in so many ways, but I was still kind of struck by how that little rant that Adam went on was, like, dangerously close to like get off my lawn territory. <laughs> like, why don't these kids ring up my you... video rental in enough time? And... <laughs> yeah, that storyline, I was a little bit torn because there were definitely scenes that would frustrate me. Like if my new boss came in with all of his friends totally stoned. <laughs> but like, I, I found myself siding with Corey more than Adam, which I found really strange. But I was like, listen, you're not the boss. He's the boss. You keep kind of acting like you're the boss, which would be hard not to. I mean, to be fair, he's worked there 15 years. This guy's brand new. But, you know, even like the way he calls him into his office and at the very beginning when he thinks that Corey is a delivery boy and he's like real rude to him. Like, yeah. It wasn't the most flattering Adam we've seen ever, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I'm definitely on Adam's side, but <laughs> for his thoughts, but not for his actions. Like, I'm Ooh. like, yeah, this dude's annoying. He shouldn't be the boss. He's definitely smoking weed with his friends during business hours in his office. Like, not excellent. But again, like, Adam definitely treated it like he's the dad and that's his kid. And he's like, yelling at him about how he should be running things. And I was like, no, you got to suck up to the boss a little bit and get to know him and get on his side and then talk about him behind his back and be annoyed. You That's know, like what you person. do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> As he did, I guess he did do that to Christina. I also have to say, I thought Christina in that scene cracked me up when she was playing the video playing the game. game. <laughs> she reminded me so much of um, my friend Erin, who was a previous guest in, in that scene when she was like, like, yes, like, the way she was playing it and the like sound she was making. It was so cute. I almost texted you to tell you that, Caleb. Made me laugh. <laughs> I can totally see that. Yeah, I thought, well, let me play another clip of Corey because I'm interested in your uh, in your thoughts on this. I know exactly what I'm doing. OK, OK, okay listen, you don't know what you're doing. You don't have a mission statement. You don't have a business plan. I mean, the only thing that you've presented me with is this vague idea that somehow we got weird in the 90s. Oh, I don't have an answer yet. Well, you better I... come up with one soon. You bought the company. You're the guy who has to have the answer. I know what the problem is. Well, what's that? You guys started selling out. Now, coming up with what we're going to do is a creative problem. It's exciting. And I'm working on it. And I, and I want you to be working on it, too, with me. That's it? Yeah. That's how people solve problems. They think about them. You can't control creativity, man. Now, I'm completely comfortable with the fact that I don't have an answer yet. But you need to be comfortable with that, too. Because whatever we do, it's going to involve taking risks. Is there, like, a rule that 
all of Adam's bosses have to be cartoon characters and not <laughs> real people. So we went from Gordon to this guy. I'm like, none of you are real. I don't. Maybe. That yeah. would be an interesting policy. Yeah. <laughs> I do think in general in parenthood, like all of the family is really like in-depth characters, like multi-dimensional. And then when there's like minor characters, a lot of the time they are just kind of caricatures. Like yeah. this guy's not a real person. I don't think this boss is a real person. No. He's close. Like he could have been and still had the same conflict with Adam. But this is like a little over the top. Yeah. That's an interesting observation. Although I I thought this guy felt real. Right. <laughs> I feel like I've known people like Maybe this. you know him. Exactly. I, I don't know one of him. <laughs> I haven't known a rich one of him. I haven't known that's, one who could buy a shoe a company. Yeah. One who would be in the position of being Adam's boss. Yeah. Seems slightly stretched. Yeah. I do find it interesting that he, yes, he bought the company, but I would think that buying a company certainly doesn't mean you're going to then run it yourself. So no. in a weird way, I think that's almost to his credit. Like he wouldn't be there if he didn't want to be hands-on and running everything. Anyway, my question to the panel is, do you <laughs> buy Corey's plan in quotes, plan for creative problem solving that he laid out there? Or is he just full of it? I will say that from what I understand of certain jobs, like I've never worked at Hallmark, you know, like the actual making the cards part of Hallmark, not just the store that sells the cards. I haven't worked either. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I hear that Hallmark has like rooms for relaxation and just thinking. It was kind of like supports that idea that sometimes what you need to do is not just sit at a desk in a cubicle and like work. That sometimes you need to free up your mind. You need to, you know, and I'm sure tons of jobs that deal with creative process do that. And I'm sure that Adam just isn't familiar with that. Uh, Hallmark's just the only one I know of, but I'm sure there are a lot of examples. But yeah, Dylan, what do you think? I would agree with that. I feel like there's definitely benefit to alternative ways of doing work. Like I'm all about not just sitting at a desk and doing it the traditional way. And I liked what he said about taking risks. But again, like that part of his speech seemed legit. And then kind of everything else he did and said in the episode. But so like, like Adam was right. Like you should be talking to the design team. Like you should be talking to people on your team, having brainstorm sessions with not just your buddies and the people who work for your company. Um, and I feel like if he came in because he knew the company got weird and he knew what he wanted to change, he could have made that like abundantly clear earlier and come up with a bit of a plan. Like it seems like he's not, working mm -hmm. I think only thinking at work is not doing any work but I definitely there's merit to the risk taking and different ways of thinking creatively 100% I think that's good for Adam yeah I agree with pretty much everything you just said I that was my one big caveat too was like why isn't he meeting with anyone mm -hmm. because I thought his thoughts on creativity were pretty valid but you have a whole staff there ready to create stuff and I, I especially liked when he said, that's how you solve problems. You think about them. And I thought, yeah, that is how you solve any problem. But what's nice about a company is that you can have 40 people thinking about a mm -hmm. problem. True. And then they can share all their ideas with one another. And you never <laughs> right. know when one idea is going to spark something in someone else. And then the cumulative idea is better than any one individual person's idea. Right. And that's for solving the problem. And I think pointing out the problem as well. Like if you ask Adam what was wrong with the company, 
he would have a totally different answer than it got weird in 90, whatever. <laughs> like that's not going to be his answer. It's like, this is the boss's version of what's wrong with the company. And then he's trying to think of a solution. Whereas let's figure out what everyone thinks is the issue and yeah. come up with multiple solutions for everyone. Definitely. Well, I also thought it kind of revealed Adam sounding a little out of it, you know, like, like, saying things like, you're not prepared, you don't have a mission statement. And I'm like, well, I don't know that he has to have a mission statement. You know, like <laughs> you have this very traditional idea of everything, you know, family, but also work. And I don't know that traditional is always best. And so I, that is kind of an interesting conflict, you know, even though I didn't love Corey and I wasn't like, oh, I can't wait to see what happens next to this shoe company. I, it remains my least favorite aspect of the show, I think. Um, I still thought that is interesting to get a really creative person next to a more like, what would you call Adam? What's the, he's, he's really not creative. He's just more practical. Corporate. Corporate. corporate yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's so funny not to like play that hit again. Would this happen in Berkeley? <laughs> but when I was looking online about like, how does this show's depiction of Berkeley stack up against the real Berkeley, several places mentioned, why is Adam wearing a suit and a tie hmm. to work? Even though he works in an office and just the sense that I got from these multiple posters was that Berkeley is not the kind of place where you wear that very traditional corporate attire to work, that it's just a mm -hmm. little looser than that. So it's funny to watch Adam bump up against that in a way. I can relate to his judgment of someone else's creative process, though. I can be very judgmental <laughs> of others, especially around like in that <laughs> scene when they were all stoned and people were showing him the drawings and Adam was trying to understand but then they were like no 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 and talking to him like oh we have some insight that you poor you you just don't have i have such little patience for that <laughs> and uh but even though but that's not to say those people don't have valid ideas well they also don't work there i sometimes that's <laughs> yeah. true but i sometimes i don't give people enough uh leeway or like credit that oh you might arrive at something in a different way than i would and that's actually a benefit to the greater good, probably. But I, I get lost a little bit and like, that's not how you do it. Yeah, that's totally one of those things that like logically you would say that like, oh, everyone has different ways of doing things. But that's way easier said than done. Like in the moment, <laughs> yeah. I'm way judger of other people's creative paths. But like if you just ask me the question, is it good and beneficial to listen to other people's way of doing things? Of course it is. I just don't yeah. really want to. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. You know, I thought that a really interesting and downplayed aspect of that storyline was the fact that he actually went on an interview somewhere else. You know, I, I kind of almost forgot that that even happened until I watched it a second time per, to prepare to talk today because nothing happened with it. But I'm like, that's intense to be so upset about this boss to go look for another job and... I don't know. Were you surprised that it took him that far? I mean, he hated working for Gordon. I guess part of me is like, wouldn't you just be used to hating where you work by now? Or is it like the devil you know, the devil you don't? He doesn't know this devil. <laughs> he, he, or maybe he's just like, you know what? Breaking point. I've hated my job for 15 years. It's, it's time. That's how I interpreted it, that he maybe never really liked his job. And if it's going to take this much effort to adapt to a new way of doing it, it's like, then let's just get a, a new job entirely. 
Yeah. I think it also serves the purpose of like, if you are watching screaming at the TV, being like, just leave your job, Adam. This shows like, (laughs) this is what the job market is like right now. Here's like, it's like setting up a situation of like, this is how hard it is to get a job. This very qualified person has no chance of leaving this company right now. So that if you are a person who is, is on the side of just get out of there and get a new job, Adam, it's like, nope, the show has it covered. You can't do that. This is not an option right now. Excellent point. Yeah, totally. That scene also inspired me because I think it's the first time perhaps they've actually articulated what his job is, that he's an EVP, which I just assumed meant executive vice president. And so I looked it up. And according (laughs) to ZipRecruiter, an EVP in Berkeley makes an average of $161,590 a year. That explains their house. Average mm-hmm. and potentially up to three hundred seventy-one thousand six hundred sixty-two, and I thought, well, Adam's been there for fifteen years, so I, I don't think it's unreasonable to think he'd be above average. Wow! Mm-hmm. And yeah, that did make me, in a way, I kind of liked it because it's like, yeah, that's why Christine stays at Christina stays at home and doesn't work. Yeah, mm-hmm. because Adam is making bank. plenty, and although I'm sure cost of living there is extremely high. But still, that's a And with a kid with special needs as well. They have a lot of things to spend money on. True. And and another kid about to go to college in a year. Right. No. Yeah. I also, it never occurred to me, but in that scene with Max, when Adam says he's feeling old, he says he's 41, which is not news because I think he said in the first season that he was 40. But I somehow never connected the dots and realized if Hattie is 16, Mm -hmm. that means that Adam was 25 when she was born. And that feels so young to me, which is crazy because that's very normal that a 25-year-old would have a child. That's not crazy, but it just means that like I would have a 10-year-old right now. Mm -hmm. And that seems impossible. It struck me because my husband is 41. And, you know, when I first watched this show, thought like Adam and Sarah seemed so much older than I am. And of course, those actors are because they're not frozen in time at 41. <laughs> they continue to age. But it is strange to watch a show like, like the first time I watched Gilmore Girls and I was closer to Rory's age. And then like now when I rewatch it, I'm much closer to Lorelai's and I, I'm, I'm older than Lorelai. You know, it's it's just weird how that works. These these shows do get sort of frozen in time and your life keeps going. And you're, <laughs> you know, Holden Caulfield is a teenager forever. And, and yeah, we just keep getting older. Speaking of ages, we finally got some clarification in this episode about Alex's age. Yeah. He's 19. And I was I appreciated the clarification I did a little bit more looking up about California law Ah. in terms of, you know, is there a Romeo and Juliet exception to like statutory rape laws? And I found conflicting information on the internet. Imagine that. But (laughs) it appears that there is a Romeo and Juliet exception, but it's still technically illegal for anyone to have sex with a minor. So obviously he and Hattie, as far as we know, have not had sex. I think we can be pretty assured since to say they this episode, not. they yeah. went on their first date. Yeah. So it's not like they just left that out of parenthood. It's like his whole speech is like, hey, we've had sex a whole bunch of times. I feel like I should just ask you on a date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so they haven't broken the law, but they would be breaking the law if they did have sex. Wow. I think him being 19 is a smart call on the writers because it does do a good job of like 
yes, part of what Christina and Adam do, I think is uh, not just in this episode, just in general, they're sometimes overly cautious and strict with their kids. But in this case, between the, the AA stuff and him being 19 and just his history, I'm like, I get both sides. Like I get how I would feel if I was Hattie and I get how I would feel if I were her parents. Yeah. Yeah. And if he were younger, I would maybe not feel that as much. Once again, you know, my husband is a huge Michael B. Jordan fan. And so he like kind of came in and watched like their date. And he was just as charmed as I was about that date. And he's like, damn it. I love that guy. And I was like, right. So I'm right. Right. That Adam and Christina are being ridiculous. And he's like, in real life, it would be so different. You know, he's like, you can't tell me you would be as liberal as you're being right now if we had a 16-year-old daughter who really did want to go out with a guy who was in AA and lived on his own and was three years older. And I'm like, I think I would. He's like, I think you're just saying that because Michael B. Jordan is the <laughs> best and playing like the world's kindest, you know, character and and maybe even some of the nuance is a little out. Like, you know, is he so kind? It's almost unbelievable, you know, like like that he isn't hardened at all by all the things that have happened to him, you know? And, and it was an interesting conversation because I keep thinking that I'm on Team Hattie. I'm, I'm with her. But maybe I just think that because I love them together, you know? Maybe, yeah, maybe you can't take that out of the equation. That's a good point. And I did think, I mean, Alex is just... He's the best. He is dreamy and that day I, I put down like that sets a very high bar for every first date. date for the rest of Hattie's life yes <laughs> because that's above and beyond quick note that's directed by Lawrence Trilling and I don't know I was trying to look it up at the beginning I should have done it but I didn't even think of it but one of my very favorite episodes of Felicity has a date with them watching a movie on a rooftop like the exact hmm. same thing. And wow. I'm like, you know, that really does it for me, apparently. I'm like, I've never gone on such a date. And um, maybe we're going to have to. Mark and I are going to have to What movie up. was it? It was 16 Candles. So it's always the John Hughes. Always the John Hughes. Oh, wait. No, sorry. You mean on Felicity. On Felicity was Charlie Chaplin. Um, oh, Yes. Yeah, I meant on Felicity. Yeah, you watched this episode. You knew that was 16 Candles. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was Charlie Chaplin. Uh, I can't remember. It, it was the one with the little, you know. Probably Modern it. Times or City Lights or something. Yeah. I, I've seen one of those. And to this day, I can't remember which one it was. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Didn't bother to look that up. <laughs> Who knew <laughs> I was going to bring this up? salary of an EVP in Berkeley. <laughs> yeah, I had time for that. Yeah. Um, but Dylan, I think you raise a really good point about, cause I agree. I can see both sides of the Hattie, Alex, Adam, Christina quadrangle. But something I loved about this episode is that they showed a character in this case, it was Amber expressing the exact same concerns, but the tenor of it was just totally different. What's the deal with the movie? How did uh, it go? We went to the UA Berkeley 7 yes. on Shattuck. Correct. And I can't believe that they raised the ticket prices Awful. again. So rude. And oh. what did you think about the movie? How did well, you feel? Well, I mean, it was okay, but Michael Sarah was obviously hilarious. Obviously hilarious and, and cute. adorable. Yes, correct. Okay. Okay, I think you got it. That's pretty much all the bases covered. How do I look? You look beautiful. <laughs> okay thank you thank you seriously for everything i will call you uh when it's time to pick me up can i say something even though you're gonna get mad at me okay okay drinking i know but i just need to get it out you know that my dad drank and it was a big problem mm -hmm. okay it's just that when somebody you love 
drinks, it's like they're a different person and you don't matter and it can be really, really scary. And I, I, I understand that this guy is probably the coolest guy in the whole world and I'm sure it will never be a problem, honestly. Alex is okay. I know, I know. He's been sober for six months. I know, but that's not very long. And I my dad that. would have longer stretches and go back into it. I'm just saying. I know, I'm, I hear you. I understand. Just be aware, okay? Okay? Okay. Yeah. You don't have to worry. You're my ride home. Very comforting. Okay, great. I'll call you, thank you. I, I'm listening to you. Go All right. Okay. You look great. Thank you. He's a lucky man. Okay, real quick, it was Gold Rush, Charlie Chaplin. All right, proceed. <laughs> oh, good to know. It was bugging me, and then I kept thinking on it. I just, I loved in that scene that Amber was treating Hattie with trust, I felt like. I mean, she was driving her to the date. So clearly, she wasn't opposed to Hattie seeing him. But she expressed the same concerns, but in a spirit of... I know you're capable of handling this and I trust you. So I want you to be aware of some things that maybe you haven't thought of. And I have because of a personal history that I have. Whereas, and I feel like we talked about this with MK last week. MK was our guest last week. Wow. <laughs> what a hard act. Where she follow. said, you know, trusting your children <laughs> to be able to handle difficult things. And that Adam and Christina, I think, don't trust Hattie. And I, I get it. I think there's validity in that because these are very mature things. But they have adopted a strategy of we don't think she can handle this or should have to handle this. So we're just going to avoid it. And Amber is clearly taking a different strategy. And I think clearly it resonates with Hattie a lot more. Now I'm realizing it also proves that I don't think Hattie thinks those concerns that her parents have are irrational. I think she thinks, yeah, those are valid concerns, but we can handle them rather than just avoid them. Yeah. I loved that scene. It was one of my favorites in the episode. And you basically articulated exactly what I loved about it, that that she wasn't talking down to her. She was being supportive and, and driving her, but she was like, I've got to tell you this. It's so important. And you know, it also proved that Hattie is very capable of listening. You know, she she didn't say, I don't want to hear this. Shut up. You know, she she listened. And, yeah. you know, even when she kind of started to, you know, argue and say, well, you know, but he's fine. It's been six months. And, and Amber was like, you know, my dad would have longer stretches than that. Six months is really not that long. Hattie seemed to take that to heart. Like, OK, this is maybe even big. I mean, I think she did realize that these were serious concerns. But I think that talk made her realize even more so than she had thought. And it just, it bums me out because I feel like it was a missed opportunity for Adam and Christina to maybe even get closer with their daughter and decide together what to do. And and it just, uh, the whole thing just really does bum me out. Yeah, I think you were right. Like the idea of Adam and Christina not trusting Hattie, whereas Amber was less trusting of how she knows alcoholics to behave. Like yeah, it wasn't yeah. even... It wasn't personal to Hattie. It wasn't personal to Alex. It was just, there's this thing. I've had experiences with people who are alcoholics and six months isn't a long time. And whereas for Hattie, six months, you know, when you're a teenager being like, he hasn't had alcohol for six months. It's like, he's fine. He's great. He's over <laughs> it. Um, but yeah, definitely coming from 
Amber, like that conversation between Amber and Hattie is so mature. And Hattie has proven a lot of times she's very articulate and very communicative. Even at the beginning when Christina is, is trying to get her attention and talk to her, she's like, I'm mad at you, mom. Like she's very able to talk about her feelings. Um, and it seems like her parents don't quite give her enough credit. Cause I think, I think what you were saying before is like, they could have easily had that conversation that Amber had in a way of like, we trust you. We understand we're, you can do this, but these are our concerns and we want you to be aware of them and whatever. And it would also make it so she can come to her parents mm. if she needed help. Whereas now the way it's set up, she's sneaking around and yeah. her parents aren't options now if she ever needed that assistance. Yeah. Good point. It's funny. It illuminated for me. And then you just reminded me saying it. I know a lot of what happens in the storyline, but I think even if I didn't, it makes me so nervous mm-hmm. for what's coming that there is this deception going on. And I, I took note, too, that in this episode or in the previous episode, Hattie said that she was going to spend the night at some friends mm-hmm. and Christina immediately knew that she was lying. Yeah. And then in this episode, she believed the lie so fast. Yeah. Because Amber wondered, was involved, too. That's what I want. I was like, is it just because Amber's involved that it's someone she knows? But it's not like Christina has a ton of trust in Amber. But I guess she could at least verify like, hey, Sarah, is Amber home tonight? No, she's at the movies with Hattie. Yeah. So maybe that was it. But I I don't know. It just I thought we're we're heading for a fall somewhere because this <laughs> right. is going to get found out. It also does shine a light. I feel like the show might be about like parenting in some way you know um (laughs) but like the different parenting methods of I I came from a family for sure that was never we didn't have that many strict rules so it was never you can't drink you can't do this for that very reason of like if you're at a party and you are drinking and you don't feel safe we need you to be able to call us to come get you so there's no I was never in a position where I felt I couldn't call my parents because I would be in too much trouble and I feel like Sarah has set that up with Amber in quite a nice way yeah. And as a result, like they have that nice communication where I think if Amber really needed an adult, she would be able to call her mom. And here we have Hattie in the situation where like she would not be able to. Her parents are not involved in this situation. She's sneaking around. And it's interesting. I heard you guys talk about this on a previous episode. I think it was with uh, Eric Como because I, I wanted to Aww. listen to people I knew uh, yeah. in my yeah. cramming homework. <laughs> but the idea of Sarah being so self-conscious about her parenting and Adam and Christina seeming like the model parents. And like this, I think, is an example of where Sarah does something right. Obviously, parenting, it's not really right and wrong. There's different reasons for doing different things, but something that I think they've kind of made a mistake in. And I totally agree with you. And I also think it reveals a way that Christina and Adam both are naive in a way that Sarah is just realistic about what it means Mm -hmm. to be a, a teenager sometimes. And, you know, I I think that the reason Christina was suspicious in the last episode was because, well, that was the early stages and we hadn't laid down the law yet. Now we have. We've told Hattie our expectations. She would never so brazenly go against what we said. I, I honestly think it doesn't even occur to Christina or Adam that she would do this. And I think also right now, Christina is being driven by guilt. You know, she feels so guilty. You know, she's making the pancakes. She's like, let's let's redo your room. But she's also quick to make Hattie happy. 
So when Hattie's like, yeah, I can't do it on Friday. I'm going to the movies with Amber. I think since Christina isn't coming from a self-righteous place like she was in the last episode, she's coming from a apologetic, deferential place. She's immediately like, cool. All right, Saturday. Yeah, that works. Are you going to do this with me? I just want <laughs> I just want you to not hate me. So I, I, I think it is really naive. And she's also sort of not able to see it because of how bad she feels. I also think earlier in the episode when she's trying to sell Hattie on painting the room, when Hattie comes in, she's clearly not in the mood to talk to her mom. And something about the way Christina says, Hattie, please come here. And, you know, and then I don't want to raise my voice because I'm really excited about this. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I feel like these are traits we've seen in Christina before. And I think that she has something about her where she just expects that things will always go the way she wants them to go. Mm. And in a way, I think she's, I wrote it down somewhere. Did I, was I any more articulate? <laughs> I maybe weirdly feel like Christina has a way of seeing to it that she gets things exactly her way. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's fair. I didn't compile a lot of examples or any examples other than <laughs> this one. That, but that like she expects Hattie to talk to her even if she doesn't want to. Well, that's not your call, Christina. And like she's like Hattie says in the scene, I'm mad at you. And I appreciate that Christina says you can be mad. You can be so mad. That's good, I think. I don't know. It's just something about Christina that I feel like maybe more than any other character. And she's subtle about it but I think she thinks if things aren't going my way then something wrong is happening she that's that entitlement I really think she's a pretty entitled character in many ways and you know she's used to being the good parent with the good kid and I just I think that's why I feel so strongly about Sarah being this incredible parent because I I tend to prefer it I guess when people err on the side of questioning themselves rather than err on the side of being like, yeah, I do deserve this. And I love Christina, but I think sometimes I wonder if I love Christina because I love Monica Potter. And sometimes I'm like, do I really love Christina all that much? Like if I were Hattie, it would drive me crazy that my mom was trying to bribe me when I felt she was being so unfair. And for Christina to say, you can be mad, you can be so mad. She doesn't really mean that because she's desperate for her daughter to forgive her. And she's like, I mean, if I were really mad at someone, I would not paint my room with them. That is a high pressure situation. It's like stressful <laughs> and exhausting. And and you should not get into that with someone that you're like actively pissed at. Anyway. Yeah, I think so much of Christina's character, like of her identity is being a mom and being a good mom that like rather I didn't read into it so much as entitlement as just like. I'm a mom and we're going to make it right. And we're going to have a good relationship, whatever it takes. She just wanted to do something with her kid regardless. And I do back to her being pretty naive. I think how quickly Hattie just agrees to do it and says, okay, we'll do this thing, even though I don't really want to. And I'm mad at you. She wouldn't have done if she actually wasn't going to see Alex. I think her response would be super different, but because she's sneakily seeing him anyway, she's being a lot nicer to her parents. And Christina is not even suspicious of that. She's like, this is just yeah. my good girl who like told her she can't see this person she really likes. And she's a little mad at me, but mostly we're fine. And we're going to paint her room and that's going to make everything better. And I think she like, how blind can you be? Like, clearly she's still seeing this dude. Yeah, that's so true. And it made me so simultaneously sad. And again, like nervous. Yes. 
because they were getting along so well. Like in the final scene, when you actually saw them painting the room, they seemed genuinely to be enjoying each other's company. And I thought this is only because one of them is lying to the other one. And if that fixes things and makes things feel back to like equilibrium, then the lesson that Hattie has learned is if you're happy, hide it from your parents. Mm, right. And that's not a good lesson. No. It's, that could be really destructive. And and it's not good for Christina either to think, hey, I handled this. No, you didn't. But the thing is, you could have this relationship. Like your daughter actually does like you. Yeah. You just don't build that house on a lie. And <laughs> right. Stand a lot That's so longer. TV show, though. Always. There's always so. in some episode of a TV show. You're yelling at the screen like, just tell the truth. This will all be fine. It's going <laughs> to eat you later. Like, just settle it now. Yeah. Yeah. OK, a few tangents about this storyline. First of all, question for the English teacher. <laughs> Christina, when she's making pancakes at the beginning, she says, I feel badly and I watch The View pretty much every day. <laughs> and I know that Joy Behar, a former English teacher herself, would not approve. She often says it's a pet peeve of hers that people say, I feel badly. And she says, that would mean your like sense of touch isn't very yeah. good, yeah. that you feel badly. She said, you don't you wouldn't say feel I feel bad. sadly. Yeah. So is she is she right? Joy Behar is right. I am. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I got that one wrong for a long time. My other English teacher friend, Jana, like once corrected me. She's been a guest on this show. So I used to say I feel badly. And um, so, yeah, I'm I'm coming at this from a place of we're all learning. We're all figuring it out. You know, so I'm not always right. OK, good to know. And then in that scene with Amber and Hattie, Mae Whitman had just the previous year been in Scott Pilgrim with yes. Michael Sarah. So and of course she played his girlfriend Arrested on Arrested Development. Development. Yes, so I took note of both so of good. those. Her, yeah. which is so sad. She's so great. <laughs> I read I don't know if I should say this right this second, but I read a little thing where apparently they were gonna recast the role of Anne with a different actress every episode to make it like a running gag that she was really unforgettable. That's so funny. But they loved Mae Whitman so much that they kept her, which she said she found insulting. Like, you're doing the forget <laughs> forgettable thing so well. We're just going to keep you. <laughs> you're so bland. You're perfect. Yeah, you're perfect. And there is, in fact, a Berkeley UA7 on Shattuck. Hey, fun. Very cool. Well, let's move on to Amber's storyline, which I felt like was kind of the heart of this episode. I noticed a, a running theme of people expressing some positive opinions about Seth. Your dad used to play stuff for me, you know, before it was ready, and I was, pr I was pretty helpful. Well, dad and you didn't really turn out so well, so maybe, maybe we shouldn't jinx it. No, you're right. It didn't turn out so well. But he's a very good musician, and so are you. I appreciated that, because I think dynamic, you know, characters are much, round characters, much more interesting. You know, she wouldn't have married a monster. You know, she's a good person, and, and there has to be things she loved about him. And, yeah, so I, I think it's really lovely to get a more complete picture of this man. Yeah, and, you know, that she mentions later on that, he taught Amber to play a certain chord a certain way because her hands were so small. And then Zeke saying at the open mic night, she reminds me of Seth. 
and but he meant it as a compliment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I agree at just the little illusions. We haven't seen we haven't seen this character except for that like tiny glimpse in the pilot. He's just been entirely off screen and I feel like and we've heard a lot of the bad things about him. And I feel like hearing some of the good things make him feel real and present in a way because he that character would have left a mark on these other characters and it probably wouldn't be all bad. Mhm. And so it was just nice to see some of those. And like you said, it makes him feel rounder, even though he's still not on screen. Right. (laughs) And yet it feels like, yeah, there's a whole world here. And Seth was part of it. Everyone knew him. Yeah. Up till now, it's like every time his name is mentioned, someone's like, remember that son of a bitch, Seth, that you were married to? (laughs) So, And in a way, I think it's maybe even more painful that there were these good things about him. That it's like, oh, maybe there's some universe in which... It could have worked and they all would have been just happily ever after. Yeah. Instead of, oh, yeah, she married a monster and this was the only way it could have gone. I feel like you get that. I mean, the only episodes I've watched recently are the first one and this one. Um, (laughs) So those are the two that I could draw from. But even in the first one, like Drew wants to be with his dad. He wouldn't want to be with his dad if his dad was just evil. Um, And even just him saying goodbye, like his dad, it was just, I don't have time right now for this kid. I have a tour. Like it wasn't mean or bad he just has this other life and isn't the greatest parent and probably wasn't the greatest husband but I don't think he's a bad person and we have seen little tastes of that to the best of the writer's ability for a character that's not actually in the show really you know what line I thought was super interesting again especially in an episode that's dealing with like drinking and AA and all of this that at the open mic Sarah says to Amber well if I was going to help you the way I helped your dad it would involve tequila and I thought what a strange way to help a man who struggled with addiction you know like it made me think well that adds a layer like for a while were you not really aware that he had a problem and that's that's when you would you know drink with him and then at some point it's like oh I shouldn't encourage this or was she also like always kind of enabling him I I don't know I found that line fascinating just given the history I noticed it too and wondered the same thing hearing you lay out those two possibilities now the first one sounds more plausible to me that because like they went to high school together yeah and I think they would have thought that like drinking and anything rebellious was fun and kind of glamorous and sexy in a way. And and then as they get older, she might realize like, oh, I can control this in myself and he can't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It seems like probably a pre-kid story of yeah. Yeah. It's like when they were doing fun things, like when she was doing, like there's no way when they were married and had kids, he was going on tour and she was also coming on tour and yeah. getting shots of tequila with him. Like, <laughs> seems like probably not plausible. I also noted in that first scene that, uh, Melissa, I think you're right. I think laundry is a love language <laughs> in the Braverman family. I'm going to go do that laundry. I'll leave it for mom to do. She likes to do it. Okay, bye. <laughs> she likes to do it. <laughs> I yeah. actually Camille's, made Camille's passions so include painting and laundry. It's <laughs> <laughs> caretaking. Yeah. That was one of the great Lauren Graham deliveries of this episode. The other one that cracked me up is when she knocks on Amber's door because she's playing music and says something like, uh, you're playing music. I understand it's for a thing. Perfect. <laughs> 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 Yeah, you know, my favorite line from that little part where, you know, they were 
first knocking on Amber's door was Drew. Like everyone was getting so excited. They're like, oh, I'll, I'll go. I'm going. I'm going. And then Drew was like, we're all going. I thought, how adorable that instead of him being sort of embarrassed that the family's getting excited and being like, no, everyone calm down. She might not want us there. He's like, oh, yeah, we're all going. Like he's in on it. It was so adorable. <laughs> Love that. This was not at all the point of this later scene with Amber, but I really related to Sarah's struggle in this scene as a vocal coach. Honey, I always forget this part. I know. Don't don't do it. Don't do it. You know, you don't need that lick. It's just keep going, leave it clean. No, it sounds good. It really like adds some complexity to it. I just have to. Oh, but to... honey, you're going to be so much more nervous than you think when you get up there. The microphone and the sound and the lights and stuff. You're going to get very, very nervous. And I just feel like you're you're kind of choking on that. I mean, it's Mom. it's. No, no, because your other songs Please, will be more... Please, I can't more... think about that. I just no, have to I know, I know. learn it No, I'm and just do saying it, okay? it's very quiet and simple already, and so it doesn't need the... Simple? ...kind of... No, it's beautiful. It's not too simple. It's beautiful. It okay. just seems to be making you tense to, to add the extra thing, and you don't uh, need now it. I'm nervous. Now it doesn't matter if I feel like I get it down. I'm going to be worried about how I look doing it. Never mind. You're right. I don't want to make you feel weird. It was so good. It was so good. Yeah, I just related on the level of... It takes some time getting to know someone before you understand how they best receive notes and critiques mm -hmm. and what works well for someone doesn't work well for someone else. And you can kind of cross a line without even realizing you did it and you go, oh, I shouldn't have said that. They'll respond much better if I if I phrase it some other way or so I related to that, even though I think that's not what the scene was about. <laughs> I think it was more about them as parents. But it also makes me wonder just about nerves in general. I mean, Dylan, you're a performer. And then even Melissa to like give a poetry reading or something. Do either of you have strategies for how you handle nerves before a performance? I definitely have been working on it. I, first of all, in this episode, totally relate to Amber in like almost every scene. And got so anxious with her family. First of all, all deciding after she didn't want them to, to come see this thing that they were not invited to. And then also her mom being like, I'm just going to come in here and you're going to play me this song. Like I was Oof. like, no, I would not. I don't like it. It feels icky in my body. No. <laughs> but what I related to a lot with Amber is the fact that she was willing to do the open mic and was less nervous when her family wasn't coming to perform for a bunch of strangers. I totally feel that. And I find that the technique of, well, first of all, it's weird. I'm I'm less nervous to do like musical theater performances. I'm like, okay, I'm a character. I'm in a costume. Someone has directed me what to do. I'm, I'm doing something that someone told me to. It's not me that people would be judging necessarily. Obviously, if I'm like a really bad performer, <laughs> it would be my fault. But in general, it's a lot of like, oh, well, this character is doing this or the director told me to do this or stuff like that. I'm, I'm hiding behind other things, I guess. You didn't write the show. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know? The lines are not mine. The songs are not mine. But when I'm singing my own music, I get so nervous, like to the point where my fingers are clammy. I can't play the instruments as well. My voice shakes. Even if I don't think I'm nervous, my body's like, yeah, you are. And you're not going to be able to hold out this note because we're going to make you crack or shake. And a friend of mine introduced me to a book that I recommend based on the concept, but I didn't really like the writing called The Alter Ego Effect. And it's about like having a persona for those kinds of things. So like, I've started buying outfits specifically for gigs that aren't necessarily outfits I would wear in everyday life because it's not me singing. It's this version of me that sings original music in front of people and like mm. wearing a different pair of glasses or doing my hair differently or makeup differently than I normally would. 
makes it feel a little bit more of that costume director thing that I feel with musicals. Um, so I found that helps me to like have a different version of myself that's the one up there performing because otherwise it's too raw and open and like everything feels really personal and terrifying, especially in front of people that know me because then they're like, ooh, is this song about this? And like, that's a weird lyric for Dylan to write. Like, how does she know about this emotion? Like, I didn't know she was struggling with this or whatever, which I found with Sarah even says like, oh, that's a, she said something about it like being a dark or a moody the title the yeah. title of it being like moody and i'm like yeah i would never want to share this information with my parents like this yeah. just seems like that's a later step is the people who know you best hearing your your music i feel like i so agree performing for your family in a small room i would any day of the week much prefer to play for 50,000 people yes and the <laughs> lights and the stage that's the other thing too you're not so close to them and you can't see audience members when you're on stage ugh Awful. Melissa, how about you? Well, I do get really nervous when I read. Basically, every time I read, I get, yeah, really nervous. And my voice tends to stay pretty steady, but my my hands shake. Um, And so I don't even know that I have a way of dealing with it. I just lean into it like I'm going to be super nervous. And I just try to remind myself that it's best if I sound like myself. Um, so it's maybe the opposite of the alter ego thing, which is interesting, <laughs> where I just um, try not to be anyone else. I just try to be okay with sounding like me. And, and you know, sometimes I'll even be self-deprecating and I'll tell them I'm nervous. You know, I don't usually do that, but every once in a while I might. And and it's sort of funny. I, I joke with my husband, like, I never know what I'm going to say. Like sometimes, kind of like doing this podcast, every once in a while I'll say something and I'm like, should I have said that? I do that with teaching every once in a while. And I do that with poetry reading where part of me just go taps into a part of my brain where I just say whatever is on my mind to introduce a poem. And usually I think it works pretty well. Oh, I have started rehearsing though. Um, and, and I even rehearse an outline of what I might say between each poem. And I tend to only practice it once because I don't want it to become too pat, but I want to have like a sense of if like my set list works, you know, if I can easily transition from one poem to the next, things like that. So I guess I do practice, but not over practice. I wonder if Amber was on the verge of over practicing, you know, like, like almost getting in her own head too much about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What about the actual content of what you guys are performing? Mm. Cause like, I wondered listening to Amber's song, it sounded like it was a song about an addict. Yeah. Cause I think it started with smoke makes me lose my memories. Yeah. Drink, drink. makes my body fail. And I thought like, well, given this episode, I kind of just assuming she's singing about her father. Yeah. Or, or there was another line of I've been thinking about getting clean. Yeah. You know, that's a very personal thing to talk about. And you both, I know in your writing, write about intensely personal stuff. What is it like? Does does writing about it distance you from it enough to share it with people? Or does it feel like you are just cracking your chest open and having people look right inside? You know, a quick funny story before we dive into that, because if Amber is writing about her father, it's a persona song, right? Like, because it's in first person, but it's a character. It's not her, I'm guessing. And so real quick, my cousin once asked me to write a poem for her and her husband at their wedding. And it was from the point of view of my cousin. It used, you know, I, and it was about being in love with this man. And my mom 
<laughs> was like, Melissa, are you in love with John? <laughs> and I was like, what? No. And she was like, but this poem indicates that you are. And I was like, the poem that I just read at their wedding? Like, why would I choose this <laughs> method of telling everyone that I was? And she's like, huh, I just don't know if people got that. And I'm like, well, I hope that they got that it was a persona more than thinking I was confessing my love. So anyway, just wanted to throw that out there that maybe sometimes using first person for a character dangerous. is dangerous. <laughs> I'm glad I go the other way yeah. around. I do a lot of songs in third person that are clearly about me. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's my technique. I don't think my songs, they're always based on something super real, but they're, you know, it's, it's poetry. It's like comes from me, but there's things that aren't actually my personal experience that are thrown in there. And, you know, there's some freedom with that. So I've never felt like I've been sharing too much of myself to people when I'm singing songs. Also, I'm incredibly open. So I've told like exes and people that I'm friends with, like this song is about you. And they're like, cool. (laughs) Usually goes over fine. I'm actually going to suggest to one of my friends, he's engaged and I have a song about him. And I'm going to be like, you should use this as your wedding song. Wow. (laughs) That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, I'm nervous. I I haven't even talked about this on the podcast, but I have a book coming out, which is very exciting. It's my second book, actually, but my first book, the, 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 I think the difference between the two is that the first book, I was so acutely aware that my mom would read it and that people in my family would read it. And so while I think, it, you know, I'm proud of those poems, they were written so long ago that I think I'm a lot better now. So, but anyway, I call them the sort of like rose colored version of events and I feel like this book is more the full truth and not just the looking at the bright side kind of truth. You know, like the first book was missing my father who has died. But the second book also deals with like the guilt that I had that he died when I was 16 when you're not like the nicest version of yourself, you know, and I wish I would treated him better. And, you know, there, there are poems about my mom. We have a really complicated relationship. I love her very much, but it is a hard relationship, um, especially when I was younger And then there are poems in that book that I'm nervous for her to read. And I I hope she'll see that they were written with love, you know, and and, and all of that. But yeah, I I think that's a really hard thing is when you write and perform or or when you write something that's not just private, it becomes public. That's that can be really difficult. Um, It's hard to know how to navigate that. And again, an example of like it being way hard, like those poems having them in a book that your family isn't going to read is way easier than it being a book that your closest friends and family, like it, it's such a weird thing that it's way harder to share your art with the people closest to you who are likely to there be the most supportive. Yeah. Um, Cause you never know, like people who don't know you are more likely to say things that could hurt you because you're not a real person to them. You're just a, a poem or a song <laughs> right. and they don't have a relationship with you, but those are the people that it's like, I don't really care what they think. That's fine. I'm scared to show my parents this stuff because that same reason, like they're not just reading into it of, oh, do I like this song? Do I like this lyric? It's like, what is my daughter going through? What does my daughter think of me? And it's a lot more complicated. Yeah. Or how does this reflect on me and how I've raised her? Mm-hmm. You know, things like that. Yeah. Caleb, what about you? I mean, I know that you have your 
one man show that I got, you know, that I, I love so much. Was it weird when you came back to your hometown to perform it, like as compared to doing it in New York? Yes. I feel like I should preface this with saying I've only performed it three times total. <laughs> and so much of what I write is, I would say it's personal because I put myself into it, but it's not overtly, you know, it's not like confessional mm-hmm. sort of songwriting. A lot of times it's for projects where I am writing for characters. And so there is that buffer in between, but it was definitely different Like you said, I did it twice here in New York and then I did it in Kansas in my hometown where I knew everybody in the audience. Well, I probably knew everybody in every audience all the time, (laughs) but um, I don't know. I still didn't have quite the same fear about what the songs were about. Mm. I didn't feel like I was confessing anything too private. You know, oddly enough, I think the things I was most afraid of talking about were not even things that had happened to me, but just things that I feel like confessing how sad I feel sometimes, or just how lonely I feel sometimes, because I think I am naturally a kind of optimistic, sunny person. And that can become your persona. And then it it almost feels like, well, I don't want to reveal ways I feel sometimes and ruin that persona for people. (laughs) <laughs> which makes sense to me in one way, but then in another way makes no sense to me why I don't owe a persona to anyone. I get that, but it is still hard to like tell people who care about you like, oh, sometimes I'm really sad. Right. But in performing in general, I'm often not, mo- the bulk of performing I do, I'm literally behind someone else, accompanying them yeah. far more often than I am the main attraction. And that helps a lot (laughs) with nerves and everything. It's just, oh, it's not about me right now. And I enjoy that. You know, what's funny. I'm just realizing that with teaching, it's the opposite for me, that I'm very nervous on the first day before I know my students. And then I'm really not nervous once I feel like we have a relationship. So that's so weird that when I perform my poetry, I would rather do that in some ways, in front of strangers than people I know. I don't understand how this works. I guess there are so many layers to it, but yeah, I don't know. Performing is a hard thing. I know like with teaching too, sometimes I feel like I'm lying in a way because I feel like I'm mostly a, a, an introvert and I'm pretty quiet a lot of the time. But when I teach, I'm very energetic and funny I think you know and I tap into like this more outgoing part of myself and sometimes I get like too thoughtful about it and I'm like oh I'm a lie but I don't think I'm a lie (laughs) I think it's just tapping into a different part of who you are and like you made me think of that Caleb because sometimes you're sad and that's not a lie you know but we do contain multitudes I know I've said that here before it's just we're not one thing We're, we're lots of things Well, and I'm thinking about Amber now at her actual performance and how the person in front of her was like, or who went before she did, was like throwing her off, you know? (laughs) Was it like, should I groove? People were grooving. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. people were grooving to him. (laughs) Yeah. Should I do this so people will groove? You know, like be funky? Anyway, the way she said it was so funny. But yeah, I imagine that would be the case with any type of performance as well. Like if someone, you know, like whoever goes before you, whoever goes, you know, like you could just, there are a million things that could psych you out and that would be so terrifying. Well, it happens at auditions all the time. I've never had it 
from the point of view of someone auditioning, but I'm sure Dylan has, where you're waiting in line for hours and hours and you have the song you're going to sing and you're psyching yourself up to do it. And then the girl immediately ahead of you sings the exact same song. Oh my God, what a nightmare. And then in that split second decision, you go, do I switch my song? Do I do my song anyway? Was the girl ahead of me good from what I could hear through the door in the hallway? Or did she do it badly? In which case I should go in and do it better. And then I'll, I'll look really good. Or How do you handle that, Dylan? That happens a lot of the time because I feel like all music theater girls sing the same songs. So like you're bound to hear it at some point. I think for the most part, this is like totally off track from anything Amber related, but <laughs> uh, for the most part, you have like your audition binder where you have cuts that you're comfortable doing. So if someone, that's like if Amber had like a one cut of every genre of music and decided like, oh, people aren't digging this like mellow folky stuff. I'll sing my song that's a funky song or like a pop song. It so people can that groove. kind of idea. <laughs> so people can groove along, exactly. So it's more like that where I'm like, oh, I have other options that I know very well. It's not like I would be memorizing lyrics before I go in right. the room seconds before to change my song up. But also there's no way, like, yes, it, it's the person right before you. But even if it wasn't the person right before me, seven people have sung that song that I didn't hear that day. And like the people behind the table know that that's going to happen. You just kind of do it if that's what you think your best foot forward is. Do what you're comfortable with because you're going to be nervous anyway. So making yourself more nervous by singing a song you didn't prepare for this particular performance or audition seems like quite a risk. Wow. Yeah. Well, so in Sarah trying to navigate, you know, she kind of squashed Amber's drive to do this performance. I felt like the show provided two explanations for why she did that. And the first one was revealed in this scene with Camille. Shouldn't I be worried? You were sitting alone in the dark in the laundry room, not doing laundry? I just can't figure out how to get my whites whiter. What's up? Oh, Mom. Do you ever worry so much about something bad happening to me that you stomped out my fire by accident? I don't know. You know, we all try to protect our kids. It's what we do. You know, and then they grow up and we can't protect them anymore. And you'd save yourself a lot of grief if you'd accept that fact. I mean, we can be there for them, but we can't protect them. I think it's one of the toughest things about being a parent. She's so wise. <laughs> she is. Well, you know, I while I think that what she says is very wise, I'm not sure if I interpreted what Sarah was doing with Amber as being protective of her. I think it was only in that part where she's recommending that Amber not play that lick that she can't get and be like, don't try and complicate this. Do It, it, it wasn't, you know, she's not a, a musical coach of any kind. She's not being like, this is the musical choice to do this, but she's she doesn't want Amber to like struggle with that lick on stage and then be embarrassed to not get it and have strangers there watching her. I think in that particular moment, it's the trying to protect her and accidentally yeah. stopping at her fire, whereas not the whole thing of being part of her songwriting process and giving her advice is part of that. I think it's just that one moment. That's true. I like that. That makes sense to me. I did think that what Camille said, though, definitely applied to Adam and Christina and yeah. Hattie even though she doesn't know what's happening there. But I thought, yeah, they're trying to be protective and it's clearly not working. Yeah. And I even, I even wondered, this is a bit of a reach, but maybe that's what Adam is trying to do with TNS. 
Is mm. he like protective of, well, I think he's certainly protective of the employees. Like right. When he tells Corey, these are people with great ideas and families who mm. are relying on this. So I think he's, he's not trusting. He's not taking that risk that Corey mentions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, have either of you ever felt like overprotected? Yes. <laughs> my whole growing up. <laughs> I love my mom a lot, but she was very strict. Um, I, I often felt, uh, you know, a little resentful because I was so good, you know, like like in the sense that I didn't drink or do drugs. I, I barely kissed anyone when I was in high school, you know, and, and so sometimes I'd be like, what? <laughs> like, you know, haven't I earned, you know, but, you know, I also grew up with a lot of, you know, hardships in the family, like my dad, you know, being disabled and everything. I think my mom sometimes just wanted control over her life and and me <laughs> too. So, but yeah, I felt really overprotected growing up. Just like Brittany. Yeah. Oh, protected. I don't know if I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I, I had a, I, I was saying earlier, like my parents didn't have very strict rules for us and I definitely am very appreciative of that. Like I never felt like they were strict. They didn't check to make sure we're doing our homework or anything like that. They were like, if the kids don't do their homework, they're going to get in trouble at school. Like we don't need to be on top of that. They're going to get a punishment either from life or from a different adult. So they, yeah, they definitely weren't, weren't overprotective. They had like three rules and those are rules that I'm still strict about to this day because they were, they didn't have that many rules. So they were like, whenever you ride a bike, you have to wear a helmet. And I'm still, I do not ride a bike, even if it's like in a little (laughs) beach town where there's no cars and all straight, like I always wear a helmet. They were like, you can't smoke cigarettes, never smoked a cigarette in my life, but they didn't care (laughs) anything else. They were like, try weed, drink, (laughs) like do a little bit of things. Who cares? So yeah, that I definitely didn't have overprotective parents. I do relate though in the Amber and Sarah scenes of like Sarah trying to help with the music that she doesn't quite understand. And like Amber's frustration with that, I, it's so hard to explain that kind of creative world to people who aren't in it in a polite <laughs> way yeah. of like, your advice isn't helping or is like stuff I know, but I'm not doing it right now. Cause this isn't a perform. Like, she's like, I can't see your face. Like probably when Amber's on stage at the open mic, she's not going to look down with her hair in her face. She's probably going to perform because it's a real performance. And like her mom telling her to look up or whatever is not helpful in that moment. Um, So I relate more to that side of things than my parents trying to overprotect me. They kind of let us run free. (laughs) I feel like the other explanation they offer for what happened between Sarah and Amber was revealed in this scene between the two of them. I'm sorry you're not doing the open mic night. I feel bad about that. You know, when you have kids, if you have kids, there's something you should know very confusing thing they don't tell you. You see so much of yourself in them. You see your ironic take on the world. That one was for me. (laughs) You see your smile, your walk, your sense of humor, whatever. And you think they're you, but they're not you. And they shouldn't have all of your baggage 
your fear and your insecurity and your life experience because that's not fair. They have their own. Your song is beautiful. It's haunting and moving and it's so you. And that's all I should have said to you the other night. I'm so proud and I'm so impressed and I'm so <laughs> in awe of you. And I want you to just go out there and fly. You can fly. You can fly, you can fly, you can fly. I, I didn't love you can fly, but I loved everything else she said. <laughs> And then it came back later in a cheesier way when yeah, Amber said it like, back to her. Stop. Like, <laughs> yeah. No one speaks oh, and like this. I kind of bought it. I really? I loved no, it. I did not. <laughs> no, me neither. I loved when she said it back to her. I just like that Amber is always kind of turning around Sarah's encouragement back onto her. I do like that. I like I like that part of it. It was the specific phrase, you can fly, and the fact that it was remembered and like said <laughs> in a different conversation That's so that true. Sarah would remember as well. Like, remember you said this to me before? I'm saying it back to you now. That's true. If someone said to me, you can fly, I, I think I'd be like, wow, you think you you think you just scored some major points, don't you? But, yeah. yeah. I think a lot of that speech, honestly, I was thinking about it, and I was like, in those situations when I have, like, a little performance, and I try to think of everything as a little performance as much as possible. I have intense imposter syndrome anyway. So everything is just a small thing. And if, like, my mom gave me a giant speech before an open mic about, like, my music and my abilities and me as a person, I would be like, no, no this is just a little, like, shh, I don't want this. Like, it's very charming in the show. And I like what Sarah had to say. It was a very good speech uh, in television. But like in real life, I would be like, shh, we're just not going to talk and I'm just going to go sing my song. Thank yeah. you. And then we'll never talk about it again. That's wow, I think you might have just ruined it for me, but I'm kind of, <laughs> oh, no! but I'm kind of, I'm kind of not mad because I think it was a really good point. Yeah, because that that's was. true. It, TV, it does. It just keeps maximizing this thing that she's trying to minimize. Yeah, mm -hmm. she didn't want them to know about it in the first place. The fact that the whole Braverman clan shows up at this open <laughs> mic by yeah. the end, and like she, it started with her only telling her brother. Yeah. Like that, that traitor, that traitor who's like, we're Such all going. A traitor. <laughs> I just like the idea. I think the explanation that she gave of basically like I was projecting myself onto you and here's what I would have wanted in this situation. But it turns out it's not what you wanted in this situation. I thought that was a better explanation than, oh, I was being overprotective. Like, I think it's totally. more the second one of like, oh. I was talking to you the way I would have wanted someone to talk to me, but we're different people. I think they kind of go together, though, because I think maybe True. she would have wanted somebody to protect her, someone to tell her, you're going to be really nervous. Don't do that. You know, lick, keep it clean. And I don't know. Somehow I kind of bought that those were part of the same explanation. Yeah, they don't of... cancel each other out, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I also love that speech in general because it does show a lot of how Sarah's mindset works because you know the ability to see yourself obviously you see yourself especially in your children because you have literal DNA shared with them but your ability to see yourself in someone else and that having positives and negatives to it is is a really complex and like nice idea because that's simultaneously what gives you empathy as a human being is being able to see yourself in someone else's situation and respond accordingly 
but it also is what can make you respond in a way that isn't how they want you to respond because you're like, how would I want this? And you get in a situation like Sarah and Amber. Um, and that shows a lot in other episodes with Sarah. Like she does, she's a very empathetic person, but she doesn't always do the thing that the person would want her to do. Mm. Yeah. Also note that she said at the beginning of that clip I played, I feel bad. Yeah. Mm. So what? Who cares? Nice. Smarter than everyone. <laughs> so guess she didn't need to go to college to learn how to <laughs> yeah. speak. I also liked, I think maybe just because I knew I'd be talking about this with Melissa. I liked that she said, if you have kids. I liked that too. I was, I, I thought, what a beautiful thing to say is to not assume that your kid's life is going to be the way that you imagine it or that your life went you know, especially in a speech about yeah, you she's think so you're, on topic. Yeah, exactly. Like you're not me. You might choose a different life than I chose. And it was yeah. a cute little moment with because it came from a look from Amber of like when you have kids and it's like clearly a conversation that they've had before. <laughs> if you have kids, whatever. Yeah. Like that's not the point of it. She doesn't care, and she's unlike uh, Christina. She's not in the camp of really trying to control her kids' entire life. Yeah. Yeah. Which I found interesting because then I wonder why she did try to help with the song and everything. Because, you know, is that is that on brand for Sarah? You know, if if she I mean, I guess it is. She's the same person who kind of did try to orchestrate Drew and his lab partner, you know, be, being a thing. She's like, go for it. Maybe she just wants her kids to be happy so much that sometimes she over Inter- overly interferes you know I also think maybe there's some of that I'm cooler than you think in it like mm. hey you know I was in the band with your dad I mean I was like, <laughs> like she says to Amber like you know I'm in that I've been in that world Aww. as if she's trying to like score points with her oh but it's very sweet it yeah. is sweet but it's also I think she's a little bit oblivious too like but Amber only sees you as her mom yeah right but I love that that's who you are to her when I watch the show, it's so hard for me to not see Lorelai Gilmore in so many ways, just like the single mom who like wants to be close to her kids. But the big difference I see is I watch Gilmore Girls and I'm like, they're not mother daughter. Like they're only best friends. They rarely step into the mom and daughter modes. It happens like four times in the whole show. And in this, it's very much, she wants to be Lorelai Gilmore. I feel like <laughs> like the yeah. character of Sarah wants to be Lorelai Gilmore, but her relationship with Amber is not her relationship with Rory because it is Amber's like, you're my mom. We can be really close as mom and daughter, but you're my, I see you as an older person, as a less cool person, and as my mom. <laughs> yeah. You know, real quick before we move on, I did also want to say, I find just the, the general topic of giving notes for someone's art a fascinating thing. Because like I teach creative writing and it's a really hard thing to give suggestions. Some students are very receptive to suggestions and some are very discouraged no matter how kindly you put the suggestion and, and no matter how much you try to say, well, this is part of writing. You know, I took so many writing courses and if people had just told me, this is great, <laughs> I never would have grown or become very good right. at this. But then it's also like, well, who gets to give the advice and when? Because when, when Sarah says, your song is haunting and beautiful and that's all I should have said, part of me loved that and thought, yes. But then part of me is like, well, it is good to be able to hear suggestions, but perhaps not from your mother who's not a musician, right? Like, like I imagine someday if Amber, you know, 
studies this formally, she'll probably be quite open, you know, but it, it just mm-hmm. depends on who's doing it and why, you know, because if someone who's never studied poetry tries to tell me what to do with my poetry, I might be like, well, no, like, I, I'm not listening to you. <laughs> right. I know. I know what I'm doing more, you know, but if someone who studied it longer than I have gives me suggestions, well, of course. Yes. So I don't There's know. There's also I, a time yeah. and place, like if she's She's performing at an open mic, what, that night or like the next night or something? Soon, yeah. So there's, yeah, it's happening soon. And I, we didn't see a scene where she's really like, I'm going to play this song, mom, and I really want you to tell me your <laughs> right. input. Like, we yeah. didn't see that. And I think if you don't ask this, I, I get in arguments with people about this all the time. I'm like, I don't want people's opinion if I don't ask them. I'm very receptive to people's input and opinions. I, I don't take it personally. I often will ask people to look over lyrics or listen to a song and give me their opinion. And I love that. And I'm not offended by it. But if I play someone a song just being like, listen to this new song I wrote, and then they throw their opinions at me, I that's not what I was. It's just a different yeah. mindset, you know? So I feel like if Amber were like recording an album and she's like, this is going to be the version of the song that's on the album. Do you think I should do this little run? Do you think I should do this little lick in the guitar? Then her mom can come or whoever she's asking can come out with their ideas and their opinions. But if she's like, I'm performing this tonight <laughs> right. and I just want to play it for you. I think you kind of just listen and say the things that she ended up saying at the end of what yes. she should have said. Good yeah. call. Also, how fucking magical is that porch? <laughs> where it's they had just... that conversation, just like the beautiful lights and the couch they were sitting on. And then there was that swing behind them. And I just... can't be mad at anybody if you're talking on yeah, that. Deck. That's true. Oh, I wish <laughs> I lived there. Also, I really loved over the final montage seen Zeke and Camille and Sarah and Amber and Drew all playing and singing together. It They're singing even of... on a jet plane. Uh, Were they? I tried uh, to read their lips and I figured it out. I watched it. I was so like, I want to know if I can figure out what song they're singing. And yeah. they're singing wow. even on a jet plane. I did not realize nice that. Nice detective work. I love Thank it. Thank you so much. <laughs> I loved it. It made me think of my family. Like Aww. I remember Same. my mom telling me stories about she grew up on a farm, the youngest of eight. And that was like what they would do for fun on Sunday afternoons is everyone would just get into a room or on the porch and get a guitar and you sing songs. And, uh, I love and that. Yeah, that was great. It's a great way to be with people because you're really, if you're playing music, you're listening and you're responding, you're really interacting and you yeah, know, I loved it. Warmed my heart. You know, one of my very favorite memories with, with Caleb was when I was like in high school and the reason I know Caleb is because his older sister Jay was my best friend and I would like go over for a sleepover or something. And Caleb was like four years younger than me and he would just be playing the piano and we would all have a sing along and it was magical. It was so great. And I, I remember my, it was the best. You would play songs from Newsies and Evita. And it was like, <laughs> 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 oh. It was wonderful. Yeah. And my family really didn't do anything like that. So I really loved going over and experiencing that. Well, moving on to the final storyline and, and really, I think the best. Yeah. We saved the best for last. In this or any episode (laughs) of Parenthood ever. The school play. Um, How long has that play been going on? They were, they were practicing (laughs) it before Thanksgiving and now it's after the new year. It has lasted over winter break and into a new semester. I just don't, I don't know that I couldn't get over that. I was going to say of all the things that part, because I haven't been watching before this episode this time around. So I didn't know how long they'd been rehearsing it. 
that actually makes it seem more realistic to me because I was thinking the least realistic part of the play is that Joel comes in at the end and gives them a new script to learn in a week for a bunch of six-year-olds. I'm like, are they here with eight-hour rehearsals every day between now (laughs) and a week from now? Like, is this the only thing these kids are doing? Because my memory of school plays, I went to a Jewish day school and our plays were horrible. They were about (laughs) Jewish holidays. They had some English, some Hebrew, some Yiddish, and some French, because I'm in Canada. You had to have all four languages. And we were rehearsing plays for, I feel like, half the year. Like, I feel like it was like (laughs) each class had a play. So if your class play was for Passover in April, you still were rehearsing it starting at the beginning of the year. This makes me feel much better. Thank you. I'm not 100% sure it was that long, but it feels like (laughs) kids rehearse plays for, because professionals rehearse things for like two weeks to two months, like you know, that's around the range. This is, I feel like in school, it was months of rehearsal. And the least realistic thing was just, here's six-year-olds. We're having a brand new script that I'm giving you today. (laughs) Likely between that time and when they do the show, they have like, what, three hours of rehearsal in that week? How are they going to learn a new script in three hours? Can't even read. Although, you know what's occurring to me now that never occurred to me before with the storyline? Why is there no one from the school involved in this thing. That's a question. We've only seen Joel or Crosby. And yet the principal popped in at one point just to say, I think this one's shaping up to be a real stinker. (laughs) (laughs) But I was like, what class are these kids in? Because I'm sure this is not just their regular classroom. And even if it was, their teacher would be around. So I would think this is some like a music class or a, drama class or something. I was thinking it was like an extracurricular thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, maybe it's an extracurricular thing and it's volunteer based, but even that there would be, it's a whole group of six-year-olds. And I was thinking that when Crosby, when the kid comes up to Crosby and he has to go to the bathroom and then he wets himself and Crosby's carrying him out, Julie and Joel happened to be there, but like Crosby was going to leave. He didn't know they were there. He was about to leave the room (laughs) for like 25 (laughs) six-year-olds, which like, you don't do that. There's no. got to be, yeah, it, they didn't they didn't put that much thought into how uh, plays of six-year-olds, they didn't do their research on class of six-year-olds putting on plays, I don't think. That's true. I've literally never seen a parent be the one to, to put that on. We had a music teacher, Mrs. Medford. She was great. And she she was the one who organized our recitals. Right. It was not parent volunteers. But, and even yeah. if it had parent volunteers like to be an extra hand, they wouldn't be like leading the play. Yeah. Right. And I don't think they'd have the power to like write a new script a week before I like they're they wrote the play. They have too much time on their hands to yeah. write a play about the history yeah. of California with original music for six year olds. You know what? I just don't want them to get all snotty about how charter schools are better than public schools ever again, because the teachers don't even teach the, the kids. That, exactly. <laughs> just, the just the parents. This is the proof <laughs> right here. <laughs> Well, I liked, I was only going to include this little clip because I think it's funny. But earlier when we were talking about Drew being the only one that Amber told about this open mic thing, and someone said like, oh, they have this like nice little brother-sister bond and he betrayed it by telling the rest of the family. (laughs) And it's like, oh, that's just like this scene. I don't want to ask Joel to come back because then I'd be admitting that the play fell apart when he quit. Cross, the play fell apart when he quit. Wow. Okay, so you've already picked the side. You just betrayed that bond between nobody's, brother and sister. Nobody's and... using sides. Okay, well, if you had to pick. Joel. Wow, that was quick. 
<laughs> I enjoyed that. Well, and we've wondered before if she puts her, you know, childhood family first. No, she doesn't. I also love that Crosby like even cares about that. Like I get, I get why I get him wanting to be closer to his own son and stuff like that. But like, it seems a little out of character for him to, to care that much about a play. But then I think about Dak Shepard and like, I feel like I know him because I listen to his podcast oh, all the yeah. time. And I feel like that's something he would do as well. But it's just, it's more about like the arrogance and being too proud to say that you failed at the thing than any investment in the thing itself. <laughs> yeah. um, and I feel like he's similar to his character in that moment. I, I also wrote down just about that little scene that I feel like we don't see Julia and Crosby together all that much. And then I literally wrote down, I feel like I say that a lot, but don't they actually do a pretty good job of mixing and matching characters? I mean, like there are some who are, have a lot of time together. Like Adam and Christina are going to have a lot of scenes together and Crosby and Jasmine are going to have a lot of scenes together. But in terms of pairing them up with unexpected people, they probably do a pretty good job of that. I think. I think they do even within generations. I feel like they have, they have nieces and uncles and they have grandparents and grandkids and they kind of get around. I mean, it takes a while. It's a lot of characters. Yeah. It's a long show, but I feel like you do see, you get to know every relationship in the show. I have started listening to Dak Shepard's uh, podcast. I didn't when we started and a couple people were like, oh, you should. And so I have just selecting the guests I want to listen to. That's really all I'm doing. Fair. But There's a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> and one of them was Lauren Graham. And it was such a delight to listen to them talk. And one thing they did say was that they didn't get a lot of scenes together. And their suspicion is because they're both like easy to crack up. And they also probably more than anyone else on the show would uh, take liberties with the script and they would ad lib a bunch of stuff. And they were they were just guessing that maybe the writers are like, we can't, who knows where, where this will go, what will happen. We just have to stick them with other people. And they said that they had so much fun when they were in scenes together. That's <laughs> amazing. Thank you. Yeah. you can see that. Well, okay. So I also thought Crosby's apology to Joel was pretty funny. Joel, I'm I'm begging you, man. You you gotta come back. If you don't, this this play is gonna be the biggest disaster in California since the earthquake in 1905. 1906. 1906. Man, the play's about the history of California. I don't even know. Joel, you gotta come back. I don't know, man. I just I'm not equipped to do this without you. Yeah, and I gotta I gotta think about it a little. Okay. Crosby. Yeah. I just, I am kidding, man. What do you mean you're kidding? Your sister told me you'd be coming over. She told you that I was coming I over. I heard your bike. And then you just let me go through that whole speech and the whole time? It was a great speech. Well, then I take it all back. You can't take it back. No, it's out there. Get in here and have a beer with me. I didn't mean any of it. I want to see you do that whole thing again. That's adorable. It's so good. It's so well acted, too, with the 1906, like, stumbling upon that date. (laughs) It's so good. It really is. And I just love that. I was like, why is Crosby treating this so seriously? I, I don't know. Well, I guess that's the joke. I And also, I'm very, very bad at, like, failing. I mean, 
Let me rephrase. I'm good at failing in <laughs> some brags. <laughs> yeah. I'm good at failing. I'm I so never good. Fail. <laughs> I mean, when I do fail, I'm a real disaster. Like, I don't, I don't, like, okay. I fail pretty often like humans do, but I'm so hard on myself and I just take it really badly, you know, and I'm, I'm, it doesn't, it doesn't go well. And I just, I feel like Crosby is spiraling, you know, he wanted to be good at this and he thought, he thought he would be good at it. And that's hard when you think you're going to be good at something and you're not at all. I've heard. (laughs) (laughs) I kid, I kid. This is why I don't try new things. Really? Um, I yeah, probably, I feel that I'm in that camp. I want to know that I at least won't fall on my face before I step into something. Yeah. One little last note. When Joel comes back and he says to the kids, whisper, scream, if you're excited or whatever it was, there is one little blonde boy in the back who is just not having it. Really? No expression I on his face. That. And once I noticed it, it cracked me up and I rewound it. Oh I don't God. know if that was planned or if the kid just wasn't feeling it at the time. Or I'm, yeah, I'm wondering if it was like that. a note, like we're going to make it seem realistic. So we're going to have one kid <laughs> not doing it or whether it just so realistic and one kid just didn't want to do it. Yeah, <laughs> Both are totally possible with kids. I thought that was so good. Like, uh, I think he's very believably good with kids, you know, like even when Sydney was like, hi, daddy, he did not let that distract him. He was like, hi, sweetheart everyone you know like it was just this very um it was it was super impressive and and very believable and i'm like oh kids would love like whisper scream as loud as you can you know like that's super cute and fun and a great way and the way he even used the word tushies to get everyone to sit down (laughs) you know i'm like what a cute way like everyone on your tushies if you can hear me i just thought man this seems magnificent the way and and i don't feel like i'm very good with like little little kids um and so i was just like what a master class i'm learning so much i i I don't know i i'm in awe every time i see my husband with a bunch of kids since he's an elementary school teacher he's just like really good at that sort of thing yeah well thoughts on the episode as a whole here's a an overall thought the little adam christina altercation at the open mic is hilarious did you notice that where it was just like it wasn't a fight but it was like it felt like such a real moment where adam was just fresh from his job interview that he didn't tell christina about by the way but maybe you don't need to if you don't get it whatever but he you know christina's just talking about how well she and hattie are getting along and she's like it's going really well i mean like i'm kind of loving her right now this is great and then adam completely interrupts her and says yeah, has Amber performed yet? And Christina's like, I don't know. I didn't make up the set. Like it was just, and then that was it. And like, I, I just even wondered why is that in there? Because usually I feel like shows don't have a fight unless it's going to mean something. But that one really just felt like a tiny little fight just to for the for realism's sake of like the way couples get on each other's nerves and then it's over in a second. I, Which I, I just, appreciate. Yeah. I appreciate I anything that. that's for realism's sake, I'm yeah. like, go for it. Because otherwise like there's I think what I noticed this time around in general of watching Parenthood is I remember it being so realistic and I remember all the characters being really believable and their lines being believable. And watching the pilot again in this episode again, I have picked out more lines that I'm like, mm, that's a very TV show line. Like there was even in this one, uh, Amber, I think it's right after Amber says like, you guys can all go to the open mic, but the catch is I'm not going to be there. And she leaves and Camille's like, what's, what was that all about? And Sarah goes, 
it's about me. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Really good point. So I like if there's like things to throw in that just seem like normal, like that seems like a very regular conversation that could easily happen in this venue. Like he's coming in, he's has his attitude from his own day. She has her attitude from her own day and they're not yes. exactly on the same page. And that's like a very normal conversation that wouldn't lead to anything more. They wouldn't need a big makeup. It would just, that's how couples converse. Yes. And it was another one of those great Monica Potter. Like, she's like, what? I was just, I'm burdening my soul. Like, what? Like, but, <laughs> right. but all she says is, I don't know. <laughs> it's just great. I so didn't notice that moment that I don't even know what you're talking about right now. Okay. Right. Here's what's going to happen, Caleb. You're going to go back and you're going to watch for that moment. And I'm going to go back and watch for the little boy who's not having it. Yes. So, because yeah. I didn't Deal. notice that. Yeah. I think yours is more embarrassing because it sounds like yours end. involved dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> it did indeed that That's i it. totally missed uh well and what did you just say there dylan you you said oh i was saying you should also look to see if you can now lip read at the end when they're all jamming yes. together oh, yeah. to, to look for leaving on a jet plane Look, Which is such a tip, like that's a great song choice to have them all jam definitely like, intergenerational yeah everyone would know it that was so cute. And I loved that there, I feel like we haven't had a montage in a really long time. And so that was lovely. And that Mae Whitman got to be the one singing the song for the montage. That's very cool. Yeah. Love that. Obviously, Meet the New Boss, as the title of the episode, clearly applied very literally to Adam. So I was, I was trying to think about it like a theme to this episode. And I often will just go to the title and think, well, what did they call it? And so this is perhaps really reaching, but okay. I think it's an interesting point. The title kind of led me to a theme of relinquishing control or maybe not being in control. Obviously, Adam and Corey. Crosby is relinquishing control to Joel. Mm, meet admitting the new boss. that he's not equipped to do it himself. Sarah with Amber, kind of, she can't control that situation. She has to let Amber do it. And this is the biggest reach, but also the one I think is maybe most interesting, which we already talked about. But Christina, she thinks that she's in control of Hattie's situation. But we, the audience, know that she is <laughs> entirely not in control at all. And so she hasn't trusted Hattie to handle the situation. So Christina intervened. But actually, Hattie is still handling the situation. She's the new boss. Whoa, whoa, huh? whoa, man. I'm going to quote Ben Stiller in one of my favorite movies, Reality Bites, where he's trying to get back together with Winona Ryder. So he says, who's the boss, Tony Danza? I don't think so. It's you. And it makes me laugh every time. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that's maybe that's what's happening here. Yeah. Who's the boss? Christina? I don't think so. It's Hattie. All right. I'm done. I definitely do. I definitely like that idea of who's in control and who should be in control and what are the consequences of that in different situations. As you're watching it, you might be aware that Hattie's in control, but maybe that she shouldn't be. Like, maybe that is a time when her parents should be in control of the situation. And you're watching Crosby with this play, and you're like, he probably shouldn't be in control. And someone else should be. Like, it's kind of like, throughout the it does end in a certain way, but throughout the episode, it's kind of like, question who's in control and whether that's the appropriate person for this scenario. Yeah, yeah totally. I love that. That was really good, Caleb. Good connecting. Sometimes when I reach, I grab stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that does it. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram and like us on Facebook. Parenthood Pals everywhere.
And you can always find all of our information at parenthoodpals.com. Dylan, where can our listeners find you or your music online? Well, you can follow me on Instagram at Dylan Landau. That's the best way to follow for any music stuff, but uh, my album should be available everywhere now. Amazon, Spotify, YouTube, all the things. So also Dylan Landau on those as well. Here's a little sneak peek from Dylan's new album. and just like reconnect with you and talk to a friendly neighbor from up north we heart canada (laughs) and i loved meeting you dylan this was wonderful it was so nice to virtually meet you yeah this was very fun and thank you to all of our listeners until next time may god bless and keep you always and may your wishes all come true